Good morning and happy Sabbath, everyone. Excuse me while I hack into Rob Bernardo's computer here. All right, it is a privilege to be with you. Uh, a big privilege, actually. And what a cool thing. Like, we're talking about the 1888 message and the history of the gospel in the Seventh-day Adventist Church in such a historical location. I'm so excited for this. Uh, it's, it's a really big deal to me. So, I work for the Pennsylvania Conference, and we have actually started a school of evangelism for the 18 to 35-ish age range. It's called CORE. And in this time, uh, students are learning how to do Bible work, how to do literature evangelism, how to use social media to share the gospel. They're learning about health, agriculture, overseas missions. We have a heavy emphasis on mental health, and learning how to find healing in your own story and how to share and help with others. In fact, Paul Conniff and Bill Brace both teach at our program, and actually Pastor Rob. Anyone else in the room? I'm trying to think of. Soon, and very soon, I'm going to steal Ron for just a few days. Sherry, you can have him back, but I, I just want him for like four days. And, um, and uh, one of my former students is right up here, praise the Lord, a Battle Creek native. So um, anyway, we're really, really excited for this. Um, who's teaching? So we had Pastor Dwight Nelson teach this year, Stephen Grabner, who spoke distancely through the computer screen uh, this week here for this. Don McIntosh, uh, Pastor Rob, John Kent, Nathan Renner, uh, Jay Rosario, Israel Ramos, Steve Toscano, Paul Conniff, Bill Brace. I teach. Anyway, it's a blessing. Uh, if you'd like to know more about our program, there's actually postcards out on the table on the other side of that wall. And, or you can go to our website, paconference.org forward slash core. We've got some promo videos there you can check out. Uh, if you would like more information, you can also just text this number. Uh, can you text in church? I've already seen you do it. So just go ahead and keep texting, but add to this number. And uh, we'll have at least seen one of you do it. I won't say who it was, and you'd be surprised. Um, so anyway, you can text that number, just a name, email, and age uh, if you have an interest in attending the program uh, specifically or nor someone who would be. So yeah, what I'd like to do now is begin with a word of prayer. They started the clock. I haven't prayed yet. Is there mercy? <laughs> I was told they wouldn't start till after I pray. So we're going to pray and then we're going to start this morning's message which is entitled In Verity. Sweet Jesus, thank you for the privilege of coming into your presence, and I ask now that you would bless us, that you would speak with power, conviction, and clarity, and uh, Lord, it was a photo finish, but I believe you've given me a word in season, and so I just ask that you would give me clarity of mind and that we would understand, and we ask this now in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I was assigned the task of addressing how we can know that the third angel's message is a message of justification by faith in verity. And we'll read that quote here in a moment. But the more I studied the context of the third angel's message, uh, the more convinced I became that the entire three angels' messages are actually filled with the most precious message. So I'm going to show you Jesus in all of them, if you don't mind. Um, and so we're going to go to Revelation 14, 6 through 12, and address those things. So Revelation 12 reveals the remnant, and Revelation 14 shares the message of the remnant. Okay? And so this is the quote, the famous quote. Some of our brethren have expressed fears that we shall dwell too much upon the subject of justification by faith. First of all, who would say such a thing? I mean, really, but people did. Uh, but I hope and pray that none will needlessly be alarmed. 
for there is no danger in presenting this doctrine as it is set forth in the scriptures. If there had not been a remissness in the past to properly instruct the people of God, there would not now be a necessity of calling special attention to it. The exceeding great and precious promises given us in the Holy Scriptures have been lost sight of to a great extent, just as the enemy of all righteousness designed that they should be. He has cast his own dark shadow between us and our God that we may not see the true character of God. Man, is that a pandemic, speaking of pandemics. The Lord has proclaimed himself to be merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Several have written to me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message. And I have answered, it is the third angel's message in verity. Now, they only asked her about the third message. But I think if they asked her, would the first, second, and third angel's message and justification be unified, she would say they all are the message of justification by faith and verity. That's my personal opinion based upon my current understanding. That still makes me sad. So, from the pen of inspiration, it should be very clear then that the gospel centered in the third angel's message we'll see in the first two. So, a summary of the three angels' messages. The first angel. So, there's three kind of main components that kind of stand out in the first angel's message. So, let's see those. But if you were to do a survey of Seventh-day Adventists today, and, and I even surveyed your pastor today, um, of what people would say the first angel's message is, I believe the most common response you would get from people is, fear God and give glory to him. And my response to that answer would be, I'm so sorry. Let's try again. Um, and it's not to be chippy, but just that's not what the first angel's message says alone. In fact, that's not even the first thing it says, and it's also not the last thing it says. It's in the middle of everything that it says. Revelation 14 verse 6 says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Then to fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So when giving that answer, our people miss two, I would even say even the most important components of the first angel's message. It begins with the everlasting gospel, the logical call to action, and the appeal to that sermon is to fear God and give glory to him. And then it calls for a, uh, it closes with a call to rest in Christ by quoting directly from the Sabbath commandment. So let's break those down, the everlasting gospel. Ella White says this in Manuscript 32, 1896. The message proclaimed by the angel flying in the midst of heaven is the everlasting gospel. Then she defines what that is. The same gospel that was declared in Eden when, Satan said, or when God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. So apparently something about what's shared in the Garden of Eden, right, that message of a suffering Messiah whose heel would be bruised as he crushes the head of the serpent, and the other thing that's preached in Eden or shown in Eden is the fact that something innocent has to die to cover man of their shame and nakedness, right? And I believe that encountering that powerful message of a suffering Messiah is what will awaken enmity in the heart of God's people towards the serpent. Are you with me? Okay, so that's the everlasting gospel. How about fear God and give glory to him? Listen to this, the upward look, page 371.7. The love of God ever tends to the fear of God. Fear to offend him. Notice it doesn't say 
Preaching a message of fear leads people to love God. Did you notice that? It's the love of God that ever tends to the fear of God, fear to offend him. And those who are truly converted will not venture heedlessly upon the borders of any evil. Right? I've even heard some heretical statements from people. If all you preach about is Jesus and grace, then people are just going to go around sinning. Well, no, if you preach the gospel, it actually puts enmity in your heart towards the things that used to enslave you and pull you away from Jesus. That's absolutely a false assumption and totally unnecessary. Uh, lest they grieve the Spirit of God and they are left to their own way to be filled with their own doings. The Word of God is the guidebook and turn not from its pages to depend upon the human agent. So it's not abject fear that's referred to here. It's a reverent and thankful response to the powerful message of the gospel. It leads one to want to give glory to him. And notice also that one has to encounter the love of God first before they even could fear God and give glory to him. Hence, why the everlasting gospel precedes this call to fear God and give glory to him. It's the logical call to action or appeal of that powerful message. So abject fear robs us of a clear picture of the love of God and an absence of godly fear robs us of true perspective of our relation to God and how to follow him. He's not your fishing buddy, right? This is almighty, holy, righteous God, but he's also head over heels in love with you. Amen? That's good news. Very good news. And it just makes sense really because if you were to walk up to somebody in a street corner in Battle Creek today and say, fear God and give glory to him. I'm sorry, who are you? Like, you don't start conversations that way. At least you shouldn't, right? Uh, it's not really the best way to win souls. But that's not what God would ask of us. And the response could very much be like Pharaoh's response. Who's God that I should care? Well, they would know had you preached the everlasting gospel first. Are you with me? All right. Then it says, to worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. This is quoting from the Sabbath commandment, which implies that we are given a call to lead the world not only to respond to the everlasting gospel by fearing God and giving glory to him, but we're also to call them to worship him on his holy Sabbath and to rest in Christ's accomplished work. And there are three primary memorials listed in scripture regarding the Sabbath. It's a memorial of the fact that Jesus created us in Exodus 28 through 11. It's a memorial of the fact that he redeemed us in Deuteronomy 5, 12 to 15. And it's a memorial of the fact that he is the one that transforms us. Yeah? So the Sabbath is a memorial of the fact that we can't create ourselves, we can't redeem ourselves, and we can't transform ourselves. Hey, does that sound anything like the most precious message? Yeah, absolutely. Then we rest in Christ's ability to do all three of these things. And as a people, we are to call the world to enter into that rest. And this becomes very significant once we get to the third angel's message. But I can't go there quite yet. Sigvay Tonstad says this about the seventh day. He says, by the act of hallowing the seventh day, God drives the stake of divine presence into the soil of human time. Beautiful poetic language. But what he's implying here is that God is inserting himself into human time, right? When he hallows the seventh day. So in a very real sense then, God is bringing heaven to earth on the seventh day, right? Jesus actually says in John 17 and verse 3 that this is eternal life, that they may know you experientially, not just intellectually, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, right? So that's very good news because that means that I don't have to wait until heaven to begin to enjoy the benefits of eternal life, amen? Those benefits begin here and we take that experience from here there. 
Okay, because eternal life is knowing God personally and intimately and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. I can begin that experience here. He continues, the reason why he refrains from further activity on the seventh day is that he's found the object of his love and has no need for any further works. Who's that talking about? You. Me. Right? He's found what he's looking for and now he wants to stop and enjoy the company of what he has made. Right? God found what he was looking for when he made us and had no need of any further works. The seventh day signifies what is most essential to know about God. God ceases from working in order to enjoy the company of the person that God has created. Suggesting that the seventh day speaks as much about the value of human beings to God as of God's valuation of human life. What lies in the foreground of the seventh day's first mention in the Bible is God's gift and not human obligation. In fact, the NLT hits a home run on this in Mark 2.27. Then Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirement of the Sabbath. Amen? In fact, the way in which God creates man implies value. God did not say, let there be Adam and it was so. God stooped on the ground. He got his hands dirty. And then he breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. There's a high sense of intimacy here. And so there's already a high communication of your worth and inner value. And then to seal the deal, now let's enjoy our time together. This is all implied. The intrinsic moral value of a human being is directly tied to the seventh day Sabbath. Absolutely directly tied to that. So the Sabbath is not introduced in scripture in Exodus 20 and God telling us what to do. It's commanded in Exodus 20 as a call to remember the Sabbath day. Well what Sabbath day? The one in creation that communicates your value. That communicates that you are loved, that you are special, that you are treasured. Right? It was meant to meet your needs. Tonstad closes. He says, It is as if we hear God speaking, I am ceasing on the seventh day, not only that you may acknowledge and love me, but in order to make it known that I recognize and love you. That's why I'm stopping. The word Sabbath means to cease. God ceases what he's doing to enjoy that. Now, how does that make you feel about God when you hear something like this? I've been preaching to computer screens, y'all. I need your help. Loved. Thank you, Daniel. Anyone else? Humbled. Yeah, that's a great answer. Anyone else? You can speak in church. It's okay. Come on, Raymond. You got a strong voice. Happy, he says. Yeah, this implies that someone wants you. Someone values you. This is how you should feel every seven days, guys. We're supposed to reflect upon this and rest upon this reality. The entire purpose of the Sabbath is to give you a weekly reminder of this, that your life matters, that you have significance in this world, that you're the object of a divine love and unending love. God is calling us to cease our labors of trying to prove to God, to ourselves, and to anyone who didn't believe in us that we're enough and that we're worthy. He says enough of that and rest in the fact that you're already accepted. You are already loved. You are already valued. You belong here. I already place a high estimate upon you. And this precious gift of rest is available to every human being even after the fall. 
It's a tremendous gift to us. So how dare us blow through this precious message in the first angel's message? Right? There's a lot of gospel just in Revelation chapter 14 verses 6 and 7. There's a lot of gospel there, guys. Then the second angel. And another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Here now comes the counterpunch. Yes, there's a beautiful everlasting gospel that's been given to the world, but there's also a counter gospel that's warring with the true everlasting gospel on this earth. And God has to speak into that space. He shows the folly of false religion that uplifts man in his efforts to bring himself into favor with God and that the world is being drawn into that tide. Now, while the storefront of Babylon in this prophecy is referring to the teachings of the papacy and its war on the gospel, there are many other Babylonian movements in existence in the world today. Amen? Right? We're not going to be overly simplistic and say this is the only place that this is. That, that's the big storefront. That's the big ambassador. But there's a lot of others that still exist. And unfortunately, there can even be Adventist versions of Babylonian thinking. Right? It's, it's just, it's something that we wrestle with as human beings. I want to have a say in this. I want to be able to prove that I'm worth it. Right? And, and our flesh just longs to assert itself. And it's very difficult for us. But for the sake of time, we're just going to look at specifically some teachings that are coming directly out of Rome that are directly contradicting the everlasting gospel. The teaching of eternal torment and purgatory, right? That God is love, but then God roasts and toasts people throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. These are not, you know, statements that can go hand in hand. Denying the right and example of leadership in marriage. The baptism by sprinkling instead of immersion, right? And it's a big deal because, right, we are laid in the grave in Jesus' death and raised to newness of life. Infant baptism, the consequences of not, that a small infant child who has no ability to make decisions for right or wrong could be lost forever just because of not being baptized. The veneration of saints or idolizing people, obviously we have a commandment against this. Priests claiming to forgive sins, right, which is defined as blasphemy in the Bible. Discouraging personal study of the Bible for laity. The church controls your destiny, right? If you're a member of the church, you're saved. If you're not a member of the church, that you're lost. And the focus on man as the head of the church and denying the priesthood of all believers. Um, and denying liberty of conscience. Using fear to lead people to serve God. Indulgences. You can pay for your sins. Past, present, and even on special days, future. Communion and transubstantiation that Jesus is crucified repeatedly every time the Eucharist is offered. Here's a big one though, theistic evolution. To teach that God created through the means of evolution, death, destruction, and so forth, is absolutely in opposition to the creation model, which again teaches us our intrinsic moral value. These are not in harmony with the principles of the gospel. Changing God's law of love to uphold idols and changing the seventh-day Sabbath and uplifting man's traditions. Now, while it can be a little uncomfortable to have to hear things like this, the three angels' messages weren't meant to make people comfortable. They were meant to make them ready for the second coming of Jesus, to know that they are already loved, already accepted. And there's a battle that we're dealing with right now where this stuff matters. Are you with me? It's not easy to say stuff like this, you know, in a PC culture and so forth. The point is, we don't have any issues with members of any denomination. We don't even know the motives of leaders in any denomination. But the teachings that are at war with the gospel should be troublesome to us. Are you understanding me today? 
This is not about individual congregants. We are saying there is a message being propagated on this earth that is directly attacking and against the three angels' messages that are uplift Jesus and his righteousness. Are you with me? We are never against people. That's not our point. So the Dark Ages theology rendered people incapable of loving God because they were terrified of him. Right? That's not a good thing. God didn't want that. It led them to hate God. And I, I'm fully convinced of this, that one cannot truly worship when the heart is filled with abject fear. It's not possible. Which is why God again has given us this most precious message. Because remember, go to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. And beginning in verse 16. 1 John chapter 4 and beginning in verse 16. It says, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God does not just want you to intellectually consent to the fact that he might love me or that he has loved the entire human race. Right? Do not hide behind corporate acceptance today. Yes, John 3.16 is true. God did so love the world that he gave his only begotten son. But God so also loved Daniel and Ron and Kelly and Bob and Bill and Paul. Like, God so loved each of you individually that he gave his only begotten son. And he doesn't just want you to intellectually agree to that. He wants you to believe it with every ounce of your being. To know and believe the love that God has for you. Why? Because God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. In verse 17, love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Most of us are horrified at the judgment message. But yet this message is also meant to call the world to the judgment. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Right? Present tense. Well, God doesn't want abject fear in the judgment. That's not going to help us. Paul, John here is saying that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. And what Paul Connor shared a couple days ago in Romans 4 was a really big help in that. Because as he is, so are we in this world. But here's the point in verse 18. Yeah, 18. There is how much fear in love? No love. Well, what, what does perfect love do? It casts out our fear. Hey, maybe that's one of the reasons why God is asking his special people at the end of time to preach the message of the everlasting gospel, of the Sabbath, of God's love for us, of the faith of Jesus, because he wants to remove fear from our hearts and give us a boldness to preach while the judgment is taking place and there's still time for people to come in. Yeah? Perfect love casts out fear. And then it says because fear involves torment. We're afraid of being hurt. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. And how's that going to happen? We love him because he first loved us. No one is going to fall in love with Jesus until they come face to face with the fact that Jesus already loves them. Yeah? Interestingly enough, it's at the height of the darkness that God ends up bring, bringing the gospel to Martin Luther and other reformers. But the light shines brightest when it's needed most, and this is when Adventism comes on the scene, when there's a world in turmoil and uh, looking for answers. And Adventist, this Adventist message is pretty amazing because it's actually perfectly suited and best suited of any Protestant denomination and any Christian denomination in general to reach Muslims, atheists, and to bring healing and freedoms to Catholics and Protestants alike who have unhealthy pictures of God. 
Just think about that. In a time of darkness and challenges and unhealthy pictures of God, right? Gross darkness has surrounded the earth. Uh, the, the, misappre the world had become dark through misapprehension of God, Ellen White says. But the Son of Righteousness has come with healing in His wings. The Son of Righteousness must rise with healing in His wings, she says. This is our call, guys. It's to bring good news to the world. And the gospel literally is in every aspect of the three angels' messages. Right? It's pointing out a false gospel in the middle. Right? They even tell you this. Whenever you're having, you know, conflict, do use the sandwich approach. Say something positive, then address the thing that's a problem, and then end with something positive. Right? God actually kind of does this. Right? I'm in love with you. I want you to be ready. There's a judgment coming where these things matter. And there's a day that matters supremely. And it's not just because I arbitrarily said worship this day or your toast. It's that this is the day that communicates the most clearly that I love you. That I value you. That your life has meaning, purpose, and so forth. And there is something in opposed to this teaching. And let's look at it. And now let's go back to what the solution is in the third angel's message. Are you with me? Right? So we have to preach all three. We just have to. But interestingly enough, we already covered that. So God has raised up our movement to set the record straight. Right? God is looking for a straight testimony to preach the love of Jesus and the truth of Jesus and his law and so forth. That's what he wants. And the great controversy comments on this, Brian, or, uh, Bob alluded to it, uh, but I'm going to read all of it here. It says, A prayerful study of the Bible would show Protestants the real character of the papacy and would cause them to abhor and to shun it. Again, not the congregants, but the teachings of the system. But many are so wise in their own conceit that they feel no need of humbly seeking God that they may be led into the truth. Although priding themselves on their enlightenment, they are ignorant both of the scriptures and of the power of God. They must have some means of quieting their consciences and they seek that which is the least spiritual and humiliating. What they desire is a method of forgetting God, which shall pass as a method of remembering Him. Right? What is the least, you know, how can I hit the least level of what's required? Right? The lowest level of requirement to just kind of get my foot over the door that isn't really too, like, I don't want to sweat. I don't want to get uncomfortable. Like, I, I just want enough to kind of get me from point A to point whatever's good enough at the bare minimum. That's not, the, that's not the ideal experience because first of all, he says in John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus does, that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. That's not living at the bare minimum. We're told in the steps to Christ that all of heaven is interested in the happiness of man. God wants you to have pleasure. Read the Song of Solomon. Like God wants you to have an experience with pleasure, with joy, and happiness. So reaching for the bare minimum is not going to get you there, right? The papacy is well adapted to meet the wants of all of these. It is prepared for two classes of mankind, embracing nearly the whole world. Those who would be saved by their merits and those who would be saved in their sins. Here is the secret of its power. Which is why God has to say that that structure is going down. Babylon falls in the face of the everlasting gospel and the message of Christ our righteousness. Right? It's a cause and effect, but it's also a warning. Don't be there when that goes down. It's dangerous. So the question we have to ask ourselves then is, are we drinking the wine of Babylon? 
Maybe we don't believe in the sacraments or the veneration of saints, but are we exalting self or giving pictures of God that would lead people to reject him? Are you with me? You don't have to go to the far extreme to still be guilty of having a Babylonian Egyptian experience while claiming to be part of the remnant. Now the third angel. Then the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark in his forehead or on his hand, he himself also shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So God makes it very clear here that to remain in this system, and receive its mark of authority has dire and eternal consequences. And it's very much so, bad grammar, it's for the very reason that I love you that I'm giving you this warning. In fact, A.T. Jones in his 1893 General Conference uh, messages makes the point that rebutting the false views of the gospel and the teachings of Babylon, which is doomed to fall, is the third angel's message. Um, Jones makes that point and that connection and actually Wagner makes a very similar point and I don't think it's in the everlasting covenant I think it's in Christ and his righteousness it's, I've been reading both recently it's one of those two but they both make a very similar point then it says in verse 11 and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever and then it says and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name now I find it very interesting that those who receive the mark of the beast which, by the way, by default, means that they're rejecting God's invitation to rest. In the Sabbath, right? They're, they have rejected God's invitation to rest in Christ's accomplished work. And so, by default, they're not going to have any rest day or night. This is a consequence, right? When you reject the rest that is offered you in the completed work of Christ, you will not find rest in this life. You won't. You can numb your pain with addiction, with success, with money, and so forth, and politics and power, but you will not find rest for your soul. You can't. And this is why God offers it in Christ. And then it goes to verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Here's the grand conclusion. A people who keep the commandments of God because of their encounter with the faith of Jesus and the everlasting gospel. The three angels' messages really are a chronology of God's gospel work before the second coming. It's a road map, right? If you want this thing to succeed, if you want people to come into the movement, this is the way that it works. The faith I live by 111 says, well, what is justification by faith? It's the work of God. The work of who? The work of God in laying the glory of man where? in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. You cannot dig yourself out of this hole. It's not possible. Okay? Doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. And when men see their own nothingness, right? It's very easy for us when church services and we hear sermons, especially like hard-hitting sermons, man, I wish so-and-so was here to hear that. You ever thought that in your own carnal hearts? You can repent. It's okay. Right? Man, so-and-so really needed to hear that sermon because, man, they got problems. Well, the interesting thing is the message to the Laodicean church was that, uh, you got problems. Right? So there's a, there's a big problem that you are not who you think you are. Right? You are poor, miserable, blind, and naked. 
you don't recognize your true condition. And that's a big problem because if you don't recognize your true condition, then you're probably not going to be seeking the divine solution. Yeah? And so God speaks into this. And this is the amazing thing about the Laodicean message. That it says, you know, that your, your religious experience literally makes me want to vomit, first of all. And you would assume that God's just gonna and move on to somebody else. But what does God do? He parks himself outside of your door. And it says, Behold, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, the same people whose religious experience makes them want to vomit. He stands at the door and says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And in the Greek, this is in the continuative, which means that he has been knocking, he is knocking now, and has no intention of not knocking tomorrow. Now, if you were the neighbors, and you stared at some guy knocking on the door day after day after year after year, the thought would run through your mind of, uh, look man, obviously nobody's home. And if they are, they clearly don't want to see you. You're wasting your time, man. But if you were to look in the faith of Je face of Jesus, technically the faith of Jesus too, but if you were to look in the face of Jesus, I think you would see two things. At least two things. The first would be sadness. I wish I was in there. I wish they knew what I could do for them. And the second thing I think that you would see on Jesus' face is this look of anticipation. Maybe they just can't hear me. Maybe they're not ready yet. And so he knocks and knocks and knocks. The only reason why someone would persist on knocking on a door year after year after year is if they felt that there was something of value on the other side. It's the faith of Jesus that leads him to make a fool of himself at the door of your heart year after year after year. Because he knows that there's a solution to your problem and it's found in himself. A gold tried in the fire Galatians defines this as a faith that works by love. White raiments, the robe of Christ's righteousness. And the third one is what we really, really need. It's ISAF. Spiritual discernment to recognize our true condition. Because we don't know. So while it may be true that elder so-and-so may needed to have heard the pastor's message... Anytime the thoughts come into our mind about somebody else's problems, we should stop and ask the question, what are my problems? Jesus, it's very easy for me to see what's wrong with my neighbor. What do you see that concerns you about me? And would you help me to leave that here today? Yeah? So we see the faith of Jesus in the Laodicean message, and we have to see our nothingness to be prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We have to. And if we are not asking, search me, O God, search my heart, then it's not that God isn't capable of showing, it's that I really don't want to see that right now. And that's problematic for us as a people, isn't it? It's problematic for the world. But if somebody knew that that knocking sound that they've been avoiding for years was actually an invitation to something better than they're afraid of letting go of, probably bad grammar, it's okay, just keep rolling, they would open the door. 
it, this can be a real paradigm shifter, guys. If you realize that when I'm being convicted by the Holy Spirit, it's not an act of condemnation, but an act of invitation, it could change everything. God isn't condemning me for having sinful thoughts, right? God shows up to Cain and says, what do you do? I know it's in your heart. Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if not, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you. But you should have mastery over it. You don't have to do this. I know what you're thinking and I love you anyway and I'm here speaking to you about it anyway because I don't want you to be hurt. And I certainly don't want Abel to be hurt. Are you with me? God is striving with every human soul. Every human soul at every moment of every day. He is busy, guys, offering people something better. John 16 says the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Not just religious folk. He's convicting all of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Why? You haven't lived the life that you need to be living. There's a solution in the righteousness of Jesus, and there's a judgment coming where these things matter. Yeah? All right, now the faith of Jesus. Selected Messages, Volume 3, page 172. I think Brian actually read this. And maybe somebody else. The faith of Jesus, it is talked of, but not understood. What constitutes the faith of Jesus that belongs to the third angel's message? Jesus becoming our sin bearer, that he might become our sin pardoning savior. He came to the world and took our sins, that we might take his righteousness. This is alluding to 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. That God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And faith in the ability of Christ to save us amply and fully and entirely is the faith of Jesus. I would say is us receiving the faith of Jesus. Wagner phrases it this way. Beautiful in the everlasting covenant. God chooses men. Not for what they are. But for what he can make of them. God doesn't choose you because of what you currently are. And this is what discourages people from coming to him in the first place because of what they aren't. That's not what makes God choose you anyway. God chooses you not because of what you are, but for what he can make of you. And there is no limit to what he can make of even the meanest and the most depraved if they are only willing and believe his word. Amen? The faith of Jesus. So here's the interesting thing. The two bookends to the three angels' messages are the everlasting gospel and the faith of Jesus. The first word and the last word are saturated in the gospel. The everlasting gospel and the faith of Jesus. We cannot lose sight of this because this is what contextualizes the whole part of the three angels' messages. Right? You can't excuse one or ignore one. Again, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now the only way that people can be viewed as having kept the commandments in the past or as being capable of keeping them in the present or the future is because of an encounter with the faith of Jesus and his righteousness. Only his sufferings and death can declare and make one righteous. That's it. And Almighty says this in Review and Herald, June 4, 1895. In fact, I think, I thought I saw Jerry had used this. The righteousness by which we are justified is imputed. The righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted. 
The first is our title to heaven. The second is our fitness for heaven. Now, this idea of imputed righteousness is crediting to your account the achievements of somebody else. Literally, when we say yes to Jesus, in that very moment, we are justified. We are declared righteous. No matter what the history has been, as it says in Romans chapter 5, that, you know, that Jesus' death cancels out our death. Right? We are reconciled by his death, but we're saved by his life. And this is this idea of the imparted righteousness of Jesus. It's the tangible delivery of Jesus' righteous life into my life. That's sanctification. Right? That's why when you say yes to Jesus and, go, and grow in your Christian experience, there are certain things that you don't do today that you used to do before you knew Jesus. Right? You are tangibly receiving aspects of the life of Jesus that he already achieved on your behalf. Romans 8 alludes to this as well. That for what the law could not do, save us. And it was weak to the flesh, because my flesh can't keep the law. God did. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, in a flesh like mine. And on account of sin, Jesus condemned sin. He overcame sin in the flesh. Why? Verse 4, so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Right? So, what will keep people from seeking to save themselves in the mark of the beast crisis is by seeing what Christ has already done for them and that they will be kept by his grace. So the crisis at the end of time is the last showdown of man's efforts versus the gospel. From fig leaves back to the robe of righteousness. This is that last battle. And it reminds me of Proverbs 28 verse 13. That he who covers his sins will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Right? Adam and Eve were seeking to cover themselves of their shame and nakedness with fig leaves. And that's what we do when we're trying to save ourselves and to deliver ourselves through human means. And not by clinging to Jesus and his righteousness and confessing that I possess no righteousness. Right? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. But then we get the awesome summary of the third angel's message in Testimonies to Ministers 91.2. The Lord in his great mercy sent a most precious message to his people through elders Wagner and Jones. This message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior. This message was, oop, just said that, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. It presented justification through faith in the surety, capital S. It invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience uh, to all the commandments of God. Many had lost sight of Jesus. And some people may say, that's a past tense statement. That was a problem then. We don't have that problem now because we accepted the message and things are better. Reality tells me something different. Um, but many have still lost sight of Jesus. They needed to have their eyes directed to his divine person, his merits, his changeless love for the human family. All power is given into his hands that he may dispense rich gifts unto men, imparting the priceless gift of his own righteousness to help to the helpless human agent. This is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. It is the third angel's message, which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of his spirit in a large measure. Right? That's heaven's endorsement of the message, the outpouring of the latter rain. 
The uplifted Savior is to appear in his efficacious work as a lamb slain, sitting upon the throne to dispense the priceless covenant blessings, the benefits he died to purchase for every soul who should believe on him. And by the way, all could and should have been saved. Not one soul was overlooked in the provision of Jesus. Provision was made for all. So the message of the gospel of his grace was to be given to the church in clear and distinct lines that the world should no longer say that Seventh-day Adventists talk the law and the law, but do not teach or believe Christ. And this reminds me of the Armadale experience of W.W. Prescott. Ella White did not voluntarily take a mission trip to Australia, but Ella White ends up in Australia and she's pleading with them, please send Jones to preach at a camp meeting. Why is that? Camp meetings were not esoteric veggie meat fests back in the day. It was an evangelistic series. It wasn't for you. It was for the community and to edify you. And so camp meetings, she says, please send Jones. No. Please send Jones. No. Then she pleads for Prescott. And eventually they send Prescott. And when he gets there, if you haven't read this, it's an amazing resource. I don't know if Juanita's here, but is the bookstore here? Is there a copy of this, the Armadale Sermons at the bookstore? Okay, yeah, so go check it out after sundown because it's totally worth it. Or you can just Google it, you can get a PDF of it called W.W. Prescott, The Armadale Sermons, A-R-M-A-D-A-L-E Sermons, or Adventist Pioneer Library created a version of it called uh, In the Spirit's Power. And the preface of that book is dynamite. Anyway, Ella White, when she hears what's going on here, many of the people in the community had no interest in coming to the camp meeting because they already thought Seventh-day Adventists ran at Trinitarians. And they felt that all we're going to hear from these people is Moses and Sinai. That's all we're going to hear from them. Bunch of crusty legalists, I'm not interested. But Prescott was super smart. What they ended up doing is they transcribed his messages in real time and they printed them immediately and distributed them to the community while the meetings were still happening, right? To invite people to come. Not just here's a flyer, here's what was shared there. Taste and see, right? And come and get, get some more at the feast. And so people start showing up and one guy, his face went pale and said, this man is inspired. Another person said, I have never seen Jesus preach like this. And then when the commentary is given on what Prescott was preaching, the response was, not one of those messages what I consider to be a quote-unquote doctrinal discourse. But then we hear what he was talking about. The law, the Sabbath, the nature of man, creation. He was teaching the Adventist message, but it was so saturated in the gospel that no one knew. Right, they say a little bit of sugar helps the medicine go down. Well, the whole message, when it's centered in the cross, is delicious. It's amazing. It fills the soul. Right, it's not this white bread that you just burn off really quickly and doesn't, like, this is the wholesome good stuff. And we're also told that every one of our doctrinal beliefs find their power in relation to the theme of a suffering Messiah. Prescott did it and it worked. And so we shouldn't be having people make comments like this. And they're not making them because they hate Adventists. They're making them because of Adventists. We largely have to own the fact that many people think that all we teach is the law. Right? Teach the law. It's part of the three angels' messages. The law and the gospel go hand in hand. But do not teach the law at the expense of the gospel or the power source that makes the commandments even possible. Christ's righteousness. Yeah? All right. 
So for years, the church has been looking to man and expecting much from man, but not looking to Jesus, in whom our hopes of eternal life are centered. Therefore, God gave to his servants a testimony that presented the truth as it is in Jesus, which is the third angel's message in clear, distinct lines. And then she gives this last closing statement. This is the testimony that must go throughout the length and breadth of the world. It presents the law and the gospel, binding up the two in a perfect whole. You know what that tells me? That the law and grace are not at war with one another. Right? That the law and the gospel are not at war with one another. They are actually a perfect harmony when done as God intended. Jones says this in his 1893 sermons, where there is not only a belief in God's word, but a submission of the will to him, where the heart is yielded to him, the affections fixed upon him, there is faith. Notice, it's not just an intellectual assent. It's a complete surrender to what the word of God says. Then he continues, that is the truth of justifying faith, and that is righteousness by faith. It is a faith that works and thank the Lord for it. It is not a faith that believes something from a distance or that keeps the truth of God in the outer court and then seeks by his own efforts to make up the lack. It is not that. No, it is faith that works. It itself is working and it has a divine power in it to manifest God's will in man and then notice before the world. As Kelly was mentioning as we talked about in the covenants, when there is a transformed life the world takes notice. And no longer does the Apostle Paul have to write letters to his members that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now the name of God is uplifted and desired amongst the Gentiles because of you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is righteousness by faith, the righteousness which faith obtains, which it receives, and which it holds, the righteousness of God. Amen? Good news. Now, I want to close with this idea of what happens when we reject this most precious message and how serious it is when we do so in the faith of God's extraordinary efforts to save us from our sins. Guys, God is hustling. God is working hard for the salvation of every single human being that ever has lived and ever will live. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And I read this quote in the Everlasting Covenant that absolutely rocked me. I was just lighting up my text message feed to a bunch of people like, Did you know that Wagner says this? This is fire. So listen to this. This is the Everlasting Covenant, page 189.2. He's speaking of... Israel being delivered because of the plagues that come upon Egypt and Pharaoh hardening his heart, right, in the face of these plagues. And so it went on throughout the plagues. All the steps in each case are not recorded, but we see that it was the long-suffering and mercy of God that hardened Pharaoh's heart. He didn't want it. The same preaching that comforted the hearts of many in the days of Jesus made others more bitter against him. Just think about that, guys. The same things that won people to Jesus grizzled others to Jesus. And you think, how is that possible? Apparently it is. The raising of Lazarus from the dead fixed the determination in the hearts of the unbelieving Jews to kill him. And they weren't just going to kill him. 
they were going to kill Lazarus too because too many people are believing in Jesus because of this guy. And you think, why is it that the grace of God would awaken such militant opposition? Because there's a devil who hates this message and knows that when this message is embraced, he loses power over people. That's why. That's why there's opposition to the three angels' messages. That's why people laugh and scorn and you say Jesus is coming soon. When? Well, part of that may actually be our fault, by the way. But anyway, I digress. That's not Jesus' fault. But then Wagner said something that just rattled me. It was so profound. He says, The judgment will reveal the fact that everyone who has in hardness of heart rejected the Lord has done so in the face of the revelation of his mercy. There is not one person who will be lost who first will not come face to face with God's mercy. Not one. Not one. Marinate on that for a while, guys. People think that, you know, these people just plow through their way into hell. No, 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 no. We'll say that we'll come up with something here in a moment on that. We see the revelation of his mercy so clearly, by the way, in the three angels' messages when done appropriately. And the revelation of his mercy in the third angel's message is repeated again in Revelation 18's loud cry to the world. The last message of mercy. When I read this, it rocked me. And this kind of statement came into my mind as like a quote from Jesus commenting on this verse. Now, it's not from Jesus. I'm not a heretic. I put it in quotes just to kind of make it clear. But like this just really, really, really spoke to me. I don't know if it's going to speak to you or not. But I can just imagine Jesus saying that if anyone's going to end up lost by taking the road to perdition, they're going to have to trip over my dead body to get there. God's grace and mercy will be planted in front of every step you take towards perdition. He will not let you go down without a fight. He loves you too much. You will have to trip over my dead body to get there. Because he doesn't want a soul to be lost. Jesus has been so tenacious pursuing the lost throughout salvation history. And this beautiful and most precious message is his last opportunity to bring in whosoever will. Before that door of mercy closes. But as it says in John chapter 13 and verse 1. Having loved his own who are in the world. He loves them to the end. He loves them to the end. To the very end of their ability to make one last choice for the right before that door closes. And he loved us to the end of himself. Because as Bob mentioned, he could not see through the portals of the tomb. Jesus was sure of the fact in the experiential mind and heart that when I breathe my last breath, that's it. Hope could not be seen on the other side of this tomb. But he loved us still to the end. But guys, think about the privilege that God has given you and me to share this last message of mercy with a dying world. He could have sent literal angels. He absolutely could have sent literal angels, but he doesn't. He's sending you. But I didn't go to seminary. And? <laughs> There's no prerequisites to the great, con the great Commission. Jesus doesn't ask for your credentials. He asks for your heart. 
And as Lindy was talking about in Sabbath school, when God has the heart, you can't not share. Right? And I'll give you my slides. I'll give them to you. You can have the audio. You can study this for yourself. But this is a message that has to go to the world in our lifetime, guys. It's a prerequisite. God wants his message of mercy given to the world because he wants the world to be saved. Not just because I want this party to be over. I hate this place. I want to stamp my ticket and get out. God is thinking those people are suffering and you're telling them nothing. I want their suffering to end. Would you tell them about my grace? This is our call. This is our charge. He's sending us. We have a charge to preach this message to the world and how they respond is none of your business. That's not the point. The point is to go. So preach the everlasting gospel. Preach the message of the pre-advent judgment. Preach the Sabbath. Preach the fallacy of Babylon's gospel. Preach the validity of God's law. Preach the righteousness of Christ which makes the law a reality in the believer's experience. And preach the faith of Jesus which is our only hope. If you're looking for a sign from heaven, what do you want me to do? There it is. Preach. With your life, with your teaching, with your influence, this is the message the world has to see. To be prepared to meet their Lord. And he wants them to be prepared. But guys, we've been given a charge. We can come to conferences like this and hear great theology. Good for you. But what are you doing with this? Is that bread going moldy in your closet? Or are you giving it to your neighbor? There's only so much you can take anyway. And you'll find that the more that you share, the more you want to learn. And the more you want to eat. And the more you want to have available. So I'm not saying this to shame or guilt you into doing outreach. But guys, this message is meant not just to transform your life. It's meant to transform the lives of those around you. And God wants this message of mercy to go to the world. He wants it. He is convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's true. But he also needs... A loud voice giving the everlasting gospel, the faith of Jesus, a warning of the fallacy of Babylon's gospel to the world. And there's a loud cry of a repetition of the third angel's message that is desperately needed right now. As our country has people at each other's jugulars, we need a message that will lay all of our glory in the dust. And that will place our faith in Jesus' righteousness not in my perfectly crafted arguments. Are you hearing me? Let's pray. God in heaven, you love us more than life itself. You love me more than the experience you had with your son in heaven. And for him, heaven was not a place to be desired while I was lost. And Lord, the least we can do is to tell this beautiful news to the world around us. So as we have seen clearly that the first, second, and third angel's message are indeed justification by faith in verity, Lord, I pray that you would empower us to share it with boldness. Send that latter rain power and holy boldness as we proclaim this on your behalf to the world around us. Forgive us for our timidity. Forgive us for our fear. Forgive us for cherishing unhealthy views of you and of ourselves. And Lord, we ask that you would come and abide in our hearts. Cover our sins with the blood of Jesus. Keep your promise in Ezekiel 36. Remove the heart of stone from our flesh and give us a heart of flesh. I pray that you would put your spirit within us and cause us to walk in your statutes and judgments to do them. 
May Christ's righteousness be seen in and through me, I pray. And we ask this now in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn will be 181, Does Jesus Care? Oh, sweet Jesus, we're so thankful to hear the fact that when the world is falling apart around us, you care. And I pray that we would cherish that, that we would carry it in our hearts through the course of this day. And I pray that what we have heard this week in better understanding the most precious message and what we'll hear the remainder of this day, that it would not soon leave us. That it would inspire us to do something about it. To not just take and eat, but to receive, to give. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.